This is Fundraising Radio, and today's a guest speaker. We have Natesh Banta, co-founder and CEO of B12, and a co-founder of Rough Draft Ventures. And since Natesh has experience as a VC, angel investor, and as a founder, we'll talk about all those three topics. So, Natesh, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself, on B12, and on Rough Draft Ventures. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, background on myself is I'm the CEO of a company called B12. Our mission is to help people do meaningful work. We do this by bringing automation to the front office. So we help people build websites, do SEO, blogging, and email marketing. Uh, I've uh, started B12 in 2015, so I've uh, been there for a little, little while. Outside of B12, I'm a pretty active angel investor. I have uh, invested in just over 50 tech software startups. Uh, and then prior to uh, B12, I was a venture investor at General Catalyst, the, uh, uh, the national VC firm. Uh, where I focus on early stage investments. And when I was there, I co-founded an initiative called Rough Draft Ventures, which is a fund focused on investing in student entrepreneurs, which was a, a really fun project. Awesome. So let's start with talking a little bit about more uh, about Rough Draft Ventures. Why do you fund this uh, fund and what were you focusing on mainly, except for your investing in students? Yeah, so um, at General Catalyst, uh, I was focused on early stage investing across the board. I spent a lot of time in SaaS software, um, online marketplaces, but, um, you know, invested across the board. I was located in our Cambridge, Massachusetts office. Uh, and for anyone who's been in that area, you would know that there are a ton of amazing universities there. Uh, I was lucky enough to go to uh, Harvard in Cambridge as well. So I'm kind of pretty familiar with the university ecosystem. And so part of my investments or some investments I made uh, involved university students right, as a general catalyst. Mm-hmm. And I would meet with a lot of students as they were thinking about starting companies. And one of the things I noticed is, you know, oftentimes when a student just had the original idea to start a company, they weren't looking for like a million dollars or several million dollars, like the amount of money that venture capital firms are used to investing. They often needed like ten, twenty thousand dollars so they could, you know, get a place over the summer and work on an idea or kind of fund the really basic cost to test and validate their their idea. I would meet these students, you could tell they were brilliant, but there really wasn't a way for me to engage with them or support them. And I was a general catalyst. Um, mm-hmm. And so I talked to the partnership there about um, starting Rough Draft Ventures, which is a fund really focused on like solving that pain point a lot of students feel, which is I'm an idea, maybe a couple of people I'm working with, how do I get like very early amounts of funding to validate if it's something I want to spend more time on? And if you're in an area like Cambridge, there's just such amazing student talent that you can access. So I worked with um, uh, Peter Boyce, who uh, was one of my colleagues at General Catalyst when he was a, a college student. We started it together with an amazing set of initial students. Um, as a project, and we found that a lot of students really liked the idea of getting small amounts of funding. Um, and we've had a lot of really great companies get funded through it. So um, that was kind of the, the basis of the early days of Rough Craft Ventures. Awesome. So you graduated from Harvard, which I think is the best university in the world or close to it and many people say that the major point the major reason to go even to those top universities is not even to get the education but to get the proper network do you think it's still true in 2020 or is it a bit over exaggerated uh, i'm so much is changing right now in the world given covid uh mm-hmm. but i would definitely say uh you know i probably more frequently look back at or reconnect with people i met through my university days versus any particular lesson. Uh, and, you know, I think it was amazing to see just such an ambitious and smart group of people come together, be able to spend four years with them, 
and to see all the amazing things you're doing now is something that um, I feel very lucky to have been a part of. Um, so I think uh, kind of like just being around such smart and talented people was uh, one of the greatest aspects of, uh, of being able to go to Harvard. Absolutely. Got it. So here I want to move back to B12 and the discussion about it. So you raised, I think, over $12 million by, at the moment. And I was curious, how were you able to do that while there was a major competitor present on the market? So Weeks is, uh, as I imagine, is a pretty huge competitor of yours. How did you still manage to prove to investors that B12 is needed by the consumers? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it's a little bit of a fallacy that competition or having established players in a space is a bad thing. You know, if there's competition, especially if like the market is one that's worth billions of dollars, which is true in the web presence space where we exist, it's often a sign that there's like a real customer need. And Mm -hmm. so in many ways, it's like starting to give a positive sign that customers actually want to be in this area. Um, And like, for example, when I was a general catalyst, we invested in a company called Stripe, the, the payments company. And when they were getting started, you could say there was a really established player, PayPal, um, which is a pretty good technology company in this space. But Stripe has gone on to be able to build like a very, very meaningful business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like they're, you know, thinking about a company like, um, like Wix or the other great companies in our space, like WordPress or uh, Squarespace, you really have to kind of like understand the dynamics of the market. And so I, when I was a general analyst, I was on, uh, involved in the board of a company called Big Commerce, which is one of the leading web presence e-commerce players. And I looked at a lot of the established web presence players. And the thing that I noticed was that there's a huge amount of fragmentation in this space. So, you know, even a company like Wix represents under 2% of the entire web presence or content management system oh. market worth billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when you're kind of looking or thinking about competition in the space, and, you know, we can talk a little bit more about how you would like pitch investors in the space. You have to say, you can point to the fact that there's like an established market where you can build a multi-billion dollar business. But you have to talk about kind of like what aspects of the current players are leaving certain customer, valuable customer segments underserved. In our case, um, with B12, we noticed that a lot of the players like a Wix, a Squarespace or WordPress were particularly catered towards the do-it-yourself market. Mm-hmm. So for businesses or end users who are particularly capable of doing it on their own. But I saw this in big commerce or in other kind of front office applications, a large part of the market actually does get professional help or professional service. For every dollar of software spend, there's actually three to five dollars of professional services spend in these areas. And if you look at the customer experience and the buying behavior for people who want it done for them, the, the process is pretty broken. And that's kind of what got us excited enough to say, hey, we should build a company in this space. And also part of the way we were able to talk to folks that about the fact that there's a really big market and there's a fairly large segment of the population that doesn't have this new this buying experience and we could build something better. Awesome. So I myself work for Venture CEO and I see a lot of pitches saying like we're building something like Facebook, but we're different in this way. And usually what they're saying is makes very little sense because they're, they're, the difference is so small. What do you think? When is the point where you came up with big enough difference to build a competing uh, software to a big player in the market? What do you think is good enough to compete with someone big like Facebook or Google? Yeah, I think it really depends on like the aspects of the competition itself. So, you know, like I invested in a company called Mark 43 when I was a general catalyst, which is building police software. So there were some big players in the space, but they're pretty like legacy 
oriented players. They usually sold on-premise software. Their user experience wasn't good. Or even if you look at a company like Uber, I mean, there were large transportation companies beforehand. When you think when you're going after kind of a competitive stat that maybe isn't as modern, you can make a pitch. You know, we're just going to do kind of the basic fundamentals of we're going to bring it to the cloud. We're going to go mobile mm-hmm. first. We're going to create a a, real, a much better experience. In instances like you're talking about, where you know I admire Wix a ton, I admire Facebook a ton, Google a ton. Um, you know, you can't just say we're going to do the basics because in those instances. Uh, it ends up being the case that those companies are probably pretty good at the basics. Like Facebook already has a really great mobile experience. And so I think there you really have to think about what structural aspects of those businesses make it harder for them to service like high value audiences. So for example, if you go back to the analogy of PayPal and Stripe, like PayPal was a value-based strong technology business, but I think Stripe understood that developers were this really valuable segment of the audience weren't being served particularly well through PayPal. Mm-hmm. And so they built a product that serviced developers really well. In our case with B12, we realized that like the professional segments who who want help in their web presence aren't, aren't being serviced particularly well through a Wix or a Squarespace. And so we're very much going after that segment. And I think that the things you need to look at are, you know, is this an easy thing for a, a existing player to hop into? There are a lot of reasons why we think it's harder for a Wix or a Squarespace to jump into the do it for you business model. And then you also mm-hmm. just think, is that kind of segment large or valuable enough where you could build a, a meaningful business? Uh, and, you know, we know a very, very large segment of customers end up getting professional help. Um, so we feel confident that's a big enough segment for us to go after. Absolutely. So now I wanted to move a little bit towards how to present yourself. Uh, so you're building a company in AI's field. And right now in 2020, the AI is so popular, basically every second company is doing something with AI. Of course, I'm exaggerating here, but uh, the point is still that there are so many AI companies. How do you think founders who are just beginning something in AI field, how can they stand out from this crowd of other AI-based companies? Yeah, so I, I think there are two aspects of the question. One is a lot of things have changed in the fundraising landscape in the last month or two with, with COVID. Mm-hmm. And so... I think in general, the way that you position or think about your company uh, is, is pretty different. Uh, it's still, in my eyes, like a, a reasonably good fundraising landscape. You know, a lot of tech, tech is still um, doing well as a sector. There's a lot of capital in the sidelines, but, but things are pretty different. For AI specifically, my, you know, I think if you were raising several years ago, you could just say you're an AI company and that was enough to make you stand out. <laughs> At this point, almost every single technology business is using algorithms and data in some interesting way to develop their product. So I think they're kind of one of two approaches you can go after. The first approach is there are a very, very small subset of companies that can make a claim that the team has such a unique capability around technology that they could build something truly novel in the space. And you see people doing that in, in areas like autonomous driving. Um, and that definitely does exist, but I think it's a very small subset of the population. The second thing you can do is you can think about a very practical applied area where a certain type of AI technology can make a really big difference. And there, I think it's a lot more like traditional investing. You know, are people thinking about segments, customers, uh, and software products that could solve a real customer pain point? And their AI becomes more of a feature versus the distinguishing factor around why someone should invest in your business. Absolutely. I think that's, that's a great answer. And here I want to move back to your investing experience as an angel investor. 
Uh, you said that you've invested in over 50 companies, which is an enormous amount of companies. How do you source your deals? Where do you find those deals? Yeah, so most of my kind of angel investing started organically. So um, when I was a general catalyst, I was a venture investor for over five years. I, I was a really big believer in like being out in the market and talking to a lot of companies. I meet with over a thousand companies every single year mm-hmm. um, just to evaluate them for investment opportunities for general catalyst. Um, and once I uh, moved into starting my company, uh, thankfully with the support of GC as one of our investors, uh, a lot of those people who I'd met with and gone to know over the years would still reach out to me, you know, either for advice or uh, feedback on their pitch or anything else. And I was lucky enough to meet a tremendously talented set of individuals over those years. So a lot of it started off just like very organically. Uh, as an entrepreneur, it's really tough to balance anything outside of your startup. Mm-hmm. So I was originally really hesitant, especially in the early days of B12. But, you know, there were some friends of mine who were starting companies and I was like, you know, in any environment, I don't need to do any diligence because they're like people I want to back. Um, and then over the years, it's just grown a little bit, still very much through networks. So folks will, will uh, come to me um, who I know, um, and I often help them with like early fundraising advice or, or just um, thinking back on kind of like the early days of company formation. And, you know, given the velocity I've been investing at, um, you know, a lot of other folks uh, will find me on the list of angels or something else and reach out. The vast majority of things that I do, just because it, it, it is a much smaller percentage of my time than if I was full-time investing, mm-hmm. um, most of it is like through network or in a space that I believe uh, a lot about. Uh, and I'm just lucky to have had the opportunity to meet a lot of talented founders over the years. Um, you know, and if they come to me and there's an opportunity for me to help them, I'm um, always excited to do so. Absolutely. So you've you get most of your deals from the network. It's a common thing, but you've also mentioned that some folks reach out to you through AngelList. And that's that's the interesting part. Many of my listeners are early stage founders who have uh, very little networks and may, some, most of them actually have no connections to VCs or angel investors whatsoever. So what do you think is the best way for them to reach out to angel investors like yourself? Is AngelList a, a good way? Yeah, it's always tricky. I don't think I've ever done it, uh, you know, I- on, a, on any given day, I get five to 10 people who reach out. And for, you know, just given the fact that I'm not uh, particularly focused on angel investing, you know, the vast majority of my time is going to make to making B12 successful. It's hard for me to mm-hmm. filter through all of those. Um, you know, I think that uh, uh, if you don't immediately have like a connection with, um, uh, with a set of investors, um, I try and figure out like, is there anyone in your ecosystem who could help connect you? I think getting a strong intro does pay a lot of dividends. Uh, just, you know, being on the investor side at a venture firm or somewhere else, like there are these maybe heroic stories where like a cold email or a cold outreach <laughs> on something like AngelList leads to a deal, but I think it's a lot less common. Um, so I would instead think about how do you like progressively grow within your network, you know, and even if your network doesn't have a ton of outreach or overlap with the investor community, like figure out the places where they're there and like ask people for help. And one of the things you'll notice is you know, like folks generally like to help entrepreneurs who are out there starting companies. Uh, and so, you know, in my case, like if it's someone I've gone to know or a friend asked me to, you know, chat with someone that they that they think highly of, um, you know, I'm generally biased towards thinking about is there a way for me to help? So, um, so I think cold outreach is just like a tough place to be. Um, it could always happen and always work. But I would 
leverage your network. And, you know, if, if there's, if that's even challenging to do, I just focus on being heads down, building a great product, thinking about unique things you can do to like, just get the word out amongst users and then usually investors will follow. That's great. I, I, I like it. Now you said that <laughs> heroic stories about reaching out through cold emails or just cold outreach. I think that's, that's how it should sound heroic stories. So um, let's talk a little bit more about your angel investing preferences. What do you think are the three must have points in a pitch deck? Yeah, so as an angel, I'm like, I rarely have people walk me through an entire deck. I mm -hmm. usually make, and I think part of it is just being respectful of the fact as an angel, you're a smaller check. And so I don't want to monopolize the founder's time, but I, I will like very gladly flip through a deck. And the three things that I usually like to see are like, what does a team look like? And do they have some sort of unique ability to build a better product for the space? I'm, I personally am like entire, or I'm very people leaning towards the startups I, that I invest in. So I'm looking for the strongest possible founders who uniquely can build a strong product in the space. Uh, the second thing uh, I love to see is, is there like a link or a place where I can go to to actually like experience the product itself? Um, getting your hands on it, you know, conveys way more than any slides could. So mm -hmm. there's a way to experience uh, the product and get a sense like, is this a team that actually can shift something? is really powerful. And then the third thing is, you know, what does attraction look like in the business today? And I'm not someone who says, you know, you need to reach this type of uh, revenue traction or uh, daily average user traction or something like that to be excited. Uh, but it's just helpful to contextualize the business. You know, if you're a founder that's been at it for uh, several years, but you don't have a single customer, that might not be super great. But, you know, if you've been at it for a shorter period of time and you're already showing some users really happy, that could be really encouraging. So I'm just trying to get a sense of what does traction look like relative to kind of where you are in your company building journey, just to contextualize like, you know, where exactly the company is today. Got it, that's, that's valuable advice. So also I hear, I want to mention, I mean, not mention, but ask you about where the three common mistakes that you see founders make during the presentation or during when they're trying to pitch you, pitch you some idea. Yeah, so the, um, you know, I, I think it's, uh, fundraising itself is such a uh, non-intuitive process. It's really mm -hmm. easy to, to make mistakes or do things that are outside of like normal yep. convention. But the three things that I usually encourage folks to do, the first is, um, I, th I think founders often get caught in internal jargon or they make their pitch a little bit too complicated. And so they just, they communicate things that make sense to them internally. But when you're thinking about someone externally, they uh, they haven't really fully validated that it's like easy for people to understand. And if you're trying to convince someone of something, you want to make it easy for them to understand what you're doing. The second thing is, I, I feel like oftentimes, you know, pitch decks are very common in the industry when you're fundraising. And I think there are a lot of uh, entrepreneurs who will go out and pitch, but they haven't adequately put time into like uh, building out uh, and designing a pitch deck that stands on its own as an impressive artifact. And as trivial as it might be to make the design stand out, um, it does catch people's attention and it's a, it's a reasonably low cost, low effort thing to do. So I think just like actually designing the deck in, in the right way and battle testing it to make sure that, um, that it's something that converts well. Your pitch deck is almost like your initial intro meeting and you want it to convert to subsequent meetings. And if you're not investing the time to really validate that, you, you might not be in perfect shape. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, um, the, the last thing is, um, it just comes down to like, understanding what are the objections or 
conventional wisdom that investors have about your space. So you'll notice that when you go out and actually talk to investors, if you do a sample set of dozens of investors, you'll, you'll notice you get asked a lot of the same questions. And uh, I think entrepreneurs sometimes go out and they start just pitching people, but they haven't come up with like the answers to those basic objections. So, you know, for example, if you're a marketplace business, people might ask you, how are you going to aggravate demand? That's likely a question you'll get from multiple investors. And if you're going out and starting to pitch people, but you haven't really come up with a good answer to that, you're likely going to repeat the same reason why individuals might say no. Um, mm-hmm. So dealing kind of like understanding those objections and having good answers to them um, is like an easy thing to do upfront that uh, right. that is really important to have a smooth presentation. Definitely, definitely. I totally agree with you on all those three uh, common mistakes that founders make. And here, I have a last question for you, and then we'll wrap it up. What do you think are the first three steps the founder should make to get the first check from an investor? Yes, for me, I um, my belief is a lot of fundraising processes are pretty predictable, and 90% of success can come down to preparation. Uh, so even before you do your first meeting, I always tell entrepreneurs I work with that there's three things that you should do. And if you do those three things, you're setting up, you're maximizing your chance to actually go out and get an investor to say yes. Uh, the first we talked a little bit about, but having like a battle-tested pitch deck. So this is something that you've maybe gotten feedback on from your friends with or other people, but you understand that when you take 30 to 60 minutes from someone's time and you talk them through this pitch deck, people leave excited. And it can take a lot of work from fixing the narrative to the design to everything else. But before you even have your first meeting, you should feel really good about that pitch deck. Uh, the second thing is I always encourage folks when you when you go through the investment process, like from the first meeting to a term sheet, they're a very conventional set of questions that people ask, you know, around what do your financials look like? What does your growth model look like? Um, do you have references? Do you have customer references? And I often notice a lot of entrepreneurs don't prepare that in advance of a fundraise. So they're caught flat-footed when people actually ask for that information. And so one thing that I always do is before I do my first investor meeting, I prepare a very, very thorough data room. It's everything that an investor would need to kind of fully diligence our business. It actually doesn't take that long to do. You know, you usually do it in a day or two. But that way, when investors express interest, you can quickly give them the information they need and mm-hmm. you can present in a way that is like polished and less reactive, but more proactive. And then the last thing I do is I would figure out like, how do you create a target list of investors to go after? And how do you get the strongest interest to each of those individuals? So I would list all the investors that are relevant in your space, figure out where there's an intro, where there's not an intro. I would ask the people you're going to ask for an intro if they're willing to do it. And then I would consolidate a bunch of those meetings around a, a single window to kind of build some momentum around a fundraise. So I think if you do those three things, you know, fundraising is never something you can guarantee, but you're really maximizing the chance that you could be successful in, in raising capital for your business. Absolutely. And I love to have little arguments with my speakers when I disagree with them on some topic. But here, in this case, I definitely agree with you on everything that you said. We'll wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Natasha, for taking your time. I know you have a big company to run, and I really appreciate that you take, took some time of your schedule to, to participate in this and share your knowledge with other founders. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time and really appreciate it.